When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome to the first review of the 2020-21 school year. This is for uh, Unit 1, Foundations of U.S. Government. Uh, I'm going to base this off of a study guide uh, that uh, we worked on in class. Uh, so uh, this is something that if you have, as you're listening to this, it might be helpful to see the questions. I will read the questions um, and then try to answer them. And... Um, Anyways, try to make this as quick as possible so that you're not uh, having to, to listen to me for a long period of time. All right. So number one said to describe a federal system of government. And remember that a federal system of government is just where you have multiple governments that have power over us as individual citizens. So in our system that we have today in America, you've got the national government that has power over us. They can make rules, laws, taxes, things like that. We also have the state government that can tax us and make rules that we have to follow. And you know, if we wanted to follow, go further down, we could get into the local governments, the county, the cities, and things like that. But we're going to stop at the, the national and state governments, right? So that's where they have power over us, okay? Uh, and I shouldn't say power over us, but they do have the ability to make rules that we have to follow, to make guidelines that we have to follow, mandates, and all those sorts of things. Uh, number two. Describe a unitary style of government. Uh, unitary. <clears throat> so if you can put in your mind's eye, a good example of this from back in the day is the British monarchy. Okay. King George uh, during prior to the Revolutionary War. All right. You had the, the, the British uh, king and then you had the American colonies. All right. The American colonies were way far away from the British crown. You know, a uh, whole ocean was was uh, between us. And so we pretty much had little government set up in each of our colonies. But the British could still had all, the British still had all the power and could tell us you know, what to do. All right. Um, and so that was kind of what unitary was today. It's kind of where, you know, there is a, a separation between a um, kind of a, a figurehead power. All right, I don't want to say a king because we don't always have king in some in some of the places, but there is a uh, you know this this figurehead type of person. Uh, but then you also have a, a second secondary like a parliament uh, or legislature or something like that. All right. So think of, you know, you have in England nowadays, the United Kingdom, you have a, a king, a queen, actually. Uh, but then you also have parliament and a prime minister. So you have these kind of <clears throat> separation of powers there. <coughs> Excuse me. Number three, what is the power of the legislative branch? What is the power of the executive branch? And what is the power of the judicial branch? So remember, uh, the legislative branch is going to write laws. OK, uh, so they are going to write laws 
Uh, and within that, uh, they have all kinds of other stuff they can do. Uh, remember, we went over these powers that they have. They can uh, print and coin money. They can tax. They can declare war uh, and things like that. All right. The executive branch, uh, remember, they are to enforce the laws. Uh, they don't have much to do with the writing of them. They have some things that we're going to get into later that we didn't talk about this to go around. But there are some stuff, things that they can do. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, but uh, for the most part, their main role is to uh, enforce. And then the judicial branch, uh, they are to interpret the laws. Now, a key thing to remember here is that the judicial branch doesn't just interpret every single law that's passed by Congress and signed by the president. They have to be challenged. So if a law or policy or whatever it might be is not challenged, the courts never get to interpret it. So to keep that in mind, it's not something they just do. Uh, number four, what are meant by enumerated express powers, implied, concurrent, denied, and reserved? All right, so enumerated express, that just means that those are there. You can go to the Constitution. You can read them word for word what it says. All right. So remember, Congress has several express powers that they can do. All right. Uh, you know, like I said, they can declare war. Uh, they're the only ones that can say to print and coin money uh, and things like that. So those are expressed. They're written. They're right there. Implied. This is where they're going to stretch powers. And, you know, all the branches kind of do this to an extent. But it's in the Constitution. They can do one thing and then they take that one thing and they kind of say, well, we can also kind of do this over here. And the example I like to use is, is Jefferson back in the day when he was buying the getting ready to buy the Louisiana Purchase. Remember, he didn't really think that he could he was, or he wasn't sure that he could because it doesn't expressly say it in the Constitution that the president and that the American government was allowed to expand and buy land and things like that. And so eventually he decided, you know, what, I can't. And so that's kind of uh, implied. Hey, it doesn't say it, but I can still do it. And Congress does this all the time with, with the Commerce Clause, all right, uh, where they kind of stretch their powers a little bit, sometimes called the Elastic Clause. Uh, concurrent powers, that's powers that both the federal and state governments have. So think taxing. They can both tax us. Denied, those are powers that the uh, states are denied. They cannot do those things that it explicitly says they cannot. Items like, you know, uh, coining money, declaring war, the states cannot do that. And the reserve powers are powers left to the states. So th there are some things that the states can do on their own. <laughs> Excuse me. Number five, describe the two ways an amendment can be proposed, two ways it can be ratified, and why is it purely legislative? Okay, so the two ways it can be proposed, uh, and it starts at the national level. So either Congress, the people that are up in D.C., and it's got to be both houses of Congress, so House and Senate, by a two-thirds vote, propose and then approve of an amendment. All right. Or they could call a national convention, and I say they, that's just whoever you calls a big giant national convention and delegates from every state comes and shows up and then by two thirds vote uh, proposes and approves of the amendment. All right. So once the national level has done it, then it goes to the state level and the state level, you can either have a state legislatures. So the people down in Atlanta, the people down in Tallahassee, the people struggling with my, my fourth grade capital lesson from back in the day. Um, Wherever. OK, the capitals, the state legislatures, the people who represent us at the state level, not up in D.C., but at the state level, uh, they can vote on it and they can approve it state by state. Or we can do state conventions. Right. Um, and the number they have to get there is three fourths. So whether it's state legislatures or state conventions, they have to get three fourths of the states. So 
38 of the 50 states have to say, yes, we want this amendment for it to, to become an amendment. All right. And uh, why is it purely legislative? Well, because the president cannot veto it because it's becoming part of a constitution, the constitution. And the judicial branch doesn't get to declare it unconstitutional because it's part of the constitution. So they cannot uh, declare those things or veto those things. So it's only the legislative branch that really deals with that. Number six, who came up with the idea of separation of powers? So this feels like forever ago that we went over this stuff with those uh, English philosophers or excuse me, the enlightened philosophers. Um, so <laughs> the, specifically the separation of powers <clears throat> is going to be um, Montesquieu. Okay. So Montesquieu, very name Montesquieu is going to come up with those powers. And you know, he did, he believed, <clears throat> well, that's the next question. So let's answer that there. So number seven says, what is meant by separation of powers? And that's just where we don't want one branch of the government. I remember we have them set up as the legislative, judicial, and uh, executive. We don't want one person, one branch to have all those powers. And so instead uh, of one branch, just the government being able to write laws, enforce laws, and judge the laws, we separate them. All right. And so that way we have the legislative branch, which writes them and then stays away from the enforcement piece. The executive who enforces and then stays away from the the you know, interpreting and, and writing piece. And then you have the judicial branch, which interprets, but stays out of the other uh, two, which is the enforcement and the uh, writing. So we want to, we don't want one person, one group, one branch to accumulate all this power. So we separate them out. Number eight, describe checks and balances, give examples from each branch. So uh, this is going to be where we have the separation of powers. We have the three branches and they're in their own little sphere. All right. Uh, but they have to have some kind of watchdog function over each other. All right. So to kind of keep them in line so that the executive branch can't just go all crazy and enforce things with no repercussions so that Congress can't just start writing laws with no repercussions. You know what I mean? Um, so they have put in place some checks and balances. And you, the second part is to, to give examples from each branch. Well, the president, the executive branch, remember, they can veto laws that Congress passes. All right. So if Congress passes, sends it to the president. They don't like it. They can always veto it and not sign it. The legislative branch, uh, you know, they have a couple things. Remember, they can they can override that veto. First off, they can impeach the president or a, a federal judge. All right. They also have to approve the president's appointments to the judge judgeships to the, the federal uh, judgeships. All right. Then the Supreme Court, their main one is judicial review. Remember, they can declare laws unconstitutional. So that is a check and balance on um, on the other two branches. OK, uh, number nine, why is Congress able to regulate commerce? Well, there is a specific piece uh, or line from the, the U.S. Constitution that gives them the ability to regulate commerce. All right. Uh, and it says that to regulate commerce with four nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. So that is the specific piece that gives them the power and the ability to regulate commerce. Remember, that's just the you know, the economic piece uh, of our of our country. So Congress can regulate those things. And it's something that they have used to expand their power. You know, we talked about the elastic clause a little bit. We're going to talk about it more later. Uh, it is it is one of the the stretchiest articles and sections that the uh, Congress has used. Uh, let's see. Number 10. Who was in charge of the executive branch? Pretty simple there. That's going to be the president of the United States. Number 11. What are implied powers of Congress? And give examples. All righty. So remember the implied powers. <clears throat> 
are not expressly written into the Constitution. So uh, to have an implied power, it is something that goes beyond them. Uh, when I say them, Congress, what is specifically written in there. Okay, so it's specifically written in there. We just talked about Article 1, Section 8 about the Commerce Clause. Well, it's specifically written in there that, it, that they can regulate commerce. So that's an express power. All right. But things, you know, like establishing minimum wage, uh, regulating, you know, uh, pieces of business and things like that. Uh, all that stuff is implied where it's not specifically written. that They can do it, create a national bank like they did back in the, the eight, early 1800s. All right. Uh, all that stuff is stuff that they have kind of taken and kind of uh, messed with, played with, with the, uh, the elastic clause. All right. Number 12. Why is Article 5 needed? Well, Article 5 is the one that details the process of amending our Constitution. And the founding fathers knew that the Constitution was going to need to be changed uh, or at least adapted as they moved into the future. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they, they knew that it probably wasn't going to be something that could just just stay the same for you know, hundreds of years. And so they put in the process of, of changing it, which we've already gone over. Uh, 13. Explain the role of the Magna Carta Petition of Rights and the English Bill of Rights on U.S. government. So remember, these are some some of the the, the documents that uh, we point to as being the precursors to our American system of system of government. Uh, and you know, uh, the founding fathers were very well read on the Magna Carta, which took some power away from the king. Um, and gave it to the people, okay, the Petition of Rights, the English Bill of Rights, all those things are going to give power uh, to the people. And so, you know, there's going to, all these things are going to play a huge role in creating our document, which was the, the Constitution. Fourteen, where does the authority of the government come from in the U.S. system of government? Uh, well, we come from the people, all right? We are the driving force behind the uh, the government, at least we're supposed to be. Uh, and then, uh, where does the where is it written down and kind of regulated? Well, that comes from the Constitution. All right, so that comes from the Constitution. Uh, that is going to be the number one top dog place where we get uh, the the authority, not we, but the, the government gets the authority to govern us. Uh, number fifteen. What is the supremacy clause? So the supremacy clause is uh, a piece in the United States Constitution that was put in there because of the system of government we have, where we have the national government and we have the state government sharing powers. So the founding fathers recognized that, hey, the states are going to want to keep their powers. They're going to want to keep their uh, abilities. And so they, they wrote into it that the Constitution is the number one, what we're going to get, where we're going to draw inspiration for all laws from. Everything has to come from this. Okay, and then on top of that, they made hey, federal law is going to be uh, above state law, and so they were trying to to write it in there to where uh, the the federal government was going to be the 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 number one source of laws, and and they could supersede any kind of um, state laws. All right, now states don't always want to follow and do uh, what they're supposed to. All right, but uh, they have. Um, a little thing that, over them, which is money. I'm
All right, back from that quick break there. Um, so next question is number 16. What is an oligarchy? All right. And once again, this is from way back you know, when we first started uh, all this, this digital learning back in August, which seems like forever ago now. Um, so anyways, uh, an oligarchy, this is where you have a small group of people controlling things. Okay. So you have a small group of uh, individuals within a, uh, within a country or, or whatever it is running things. 17, what role did Hobbes, Locke, Montesquieu, and Rousseau play on the American government? Remember, these were those enlightened thinkers. And once again, we did these people way back in, in you know, the first, or first of August when we first got to class. And uh, the founding fathers, you know, uh, all read these guys uh, a whole bunch. Uh, that's that's a very general statement there. Uh, read them a whole bunch, but they read their works, they studied their works, uh, and they used their works to kind of build the foundation for the government that we have. And they used a lot of, like Montesquieu's separation of powers, which we've already talked about, Locke's natural rights. All those things were included in in, in the the American government. All right, uh, eighteen. So on the study guide, it says C number four. You need to know those powers. So number four was the enumerated expressed. So that question is going to be similar to the the, the number four uh, in that it's going to be about those those powers. So we've already gone over those. So I'm not going to go back over those. Um, if you need to rewind it, you can. Or if you want to look up the, the expressed powers, implied, concurrent, denied, and reserved powers. Number 20, explain the necessary and proper clause. So the necessary and proper clause is a clause in the Constitution. All right, so it specifically, it's an express thing. It said in there that Congress can make any law which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the powers that they're, they're given. So basically, as long as they're doing something with government business, they're allowed to, to do it. And this is where the, the, the stretching of the powers has come from and, and why. And actually, one of the, the anti-Federalists were kind of against this because that's going to give Congress too much power. If it's not, if, if they can take stuff that's in the Constitution and they can kind of uh, stretch and not necessarily, and they can do things that are outside of what is stated, that's going to be too much power. So that was one of the fears of the anti-Federalists. But the necessary and proper clause allows the, the Congress to stretch their powers and do some things that might not be expressly stated in there. It allows them to interpret the Constitution uh, and do things that are kind of not necessarily expressly written. That's those implied powers. And so that's why uh, the elastic clause, necessary and proper clause are always tied to the implied powers. Okay. 21. Why is the U.S. a republic slash representative democracy? Well, uh, that's because you know, we're not a true democracy, a true like a, a true participatory democracy. We would be a lot more involved in our decision making. Uh, instead, we elect people to um, to make decisions for us. So we elect representatives, you know, our congressmen, uh, both at the national and state level, and they make decisions uh, that are supposed to, to be in our best interest. But you know, maybe sometimes we're not represented by who we want. So. 22, what were Locke's specific beliefs? Well, remember, he believed in the natural rights. And remember, his natural rights were life, liberty, and property. And so that's what Jefferson kind of took into uh, to heart and wrote into the, the Declaration of Independence, although he did change property to the pursuit of happiness. Uh, 23, explain what is behind a limited government. So you hear this term, limited government. Well, it just means that we don't have an overbearing government that is huge and you know, you're going to have one of the big things is separation of powers. You don't have one person that has all, all that accumulation of powers. Okay. 
um, you have have rights as citizens. Uh, there's checks and balances within the, the the government. So all those things come together to kind of create a limited government. 24, explain America's central government under the Articles of Confederation. We can do this in one word, and that is weak. And hopefully you remember from U.S. history and <laughs> our class that the Articles of Confederation was a very weak government. They could not do much of anything. They could not raise taxes, so they couldn't raise any revenue. They could not uh, regulate commerce. They could not uh, call for troops to be sent to them from the states. Uh, they just couldn't do much of anything. 25 says to see number 15, and number 15 is about the supremacy clause. So remember, that was written into, the, into the, the Constitution, and it's just, hey, the Constitution is number one, and then comes the laws that uh, the federal government creates, and you have to follow them, and that's, that's kind of what they're trying to say. Now, once again, states don't always like to do that, you know, uh, and I think we talked about the example in class uh, about the marijuana laws. You know, there are some states out there that have basically – just said we're gonna just ignore the federal law because marijuana is still illegal at the, the federal level but yet colorado nevada and a couple other states have a booming business all right uh where they have legalized uh marijuana and so they're completely ignoring uh the supremacy clause and the fact that laws of the federal government are supposed to be number one okay 26 uh who wrote the federalist papers well uh you had three people that wrote them. You had James Madison, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton. Those guys are going to be the ones that write through those things. There's 85 or so of those things. Um, and if you really want to go to sleep, you listen to this podcast, it's probably going to help you go to sleep. Uh, but if you want to double up and really just uh, have insomnia, I can't go to sleep, then, then try and read some of those Federalist Papers. They are important pieces of literature. They're important pieces of our government. But holy crap, some of them drone on and are a little more. So, you know, if you need some help going to sleep, there you go. Uh, 27. Why did they write the Federalist Papers? So they wrote the Federalist Papers because, uh, you know, we kind of gloss over the fact sometimes that not everybody wanted the Constitution. Not everybody wanted to create a new government. And so there was debate over the, the ratification of this thing. So uh, let me take another quick break and I'll be back. Sorry about the breaks here. We got uh, I got kids coming into uh, asynchronous days when they're not supposed to be here, and I'm having to, to shoo them out of the, the Zoom session. So apologize for that. Uh, but anyways, so uh, yeah, we we left off talking about um, the the fact that the Constitution was not this just oh everybody's loving it. It's you know uh, sunshine and rainbows. There is a lot of debate, and so they they needed to to put these these kind of arguments for the Constitution out there for people to, to read, and they hope to gather support from people uh, in order to encourage the states to sign off on the Constitution. So that's part of the reason that it was done. Uh, 28, why were the anti-federal, what were the anti-federalists against? Well, you know, they were, they were against, they weren't necessarily against the Constitution per se, but they were against a strong central government. They were more for state rights. They wanted to have, they, they kind of, they, they recognized that the Articles was weak and they recognized they probably need a stronger central government, but they did not want the states to completely lose power and bow down completely to the federal government. And so that was the fear. Um, and then they also wanted a, a Bill of Rights added in there. And um, 
just to, to protect the people's rights. Because the Constitution, if you read through the Constitution, there, there's not really much in there explicitly say, stating what uh, you know, we as citizens can, can, can have and all that kind of stuff, or not can have, but uh, as far as rights go. All right, uh, 29, scene number 27, it's about why the Federalist Papers were written. You know, we've already kind of, kind of gone over that. 30 says, how are checks and balances supposed to stop abuses of power? So once again, uh, and we talked about this earlier up in um, number, I can't remember what number it is now, but the checks and balances, that's the watchdog function. So uh, this is to keep the president and the executive branch from doing things that are, they're not supposed to in the enforcement of laws. Uh, it is supposed to keep the Congress from doing things that might be a power grab under the, the, the writing of the laws. All right. So it's basically to just stop the branches from accumulating too much power. Uh, and it's that watchdog function that each branch has over the other. Uh, 31 says, describe the difference between parliamentary and presidential democracy. All right. So, uh, you know, we have a presidential democracy. And then if you think to England, they have a parliament, parliamentary democracy. Okay. So uh, in a parliamentary democracy, remember that they have a prime minister, but uh, the prime minister is chosen by the legislature and is a part of the legislature. So uh, the parliament picks the prime minister and then the prime minister is a part of the parliament. So is that there's no separation of powers there. All right. Uh, while they check each other because they're part of the same body. Uh, it's not like our system in presidential democracy. They're separate. OK, so we as the people get to pick the president, the executive branch, whatever. And then they are not a part. They're completely separate of the legislative branch. Thirty two describe the difference between authoritarian and democratic government. So um, authoritarian governments, remember, that's basically where the government does kind of what they want to. All right. Uh, they don't really. They're they're not concerned about me or you. And what we're going to do, you know, what we need, uh, it's just whatever is best for the government versus the democratic government, where you know the power comes from us. They're supposed to listen to us and do the things that we want versus what they they deem is necessary. Thirty three. What is outlined in Article one of the Constitution? Then Article two and Article three. OK. Article one sets up the legislative branch. Uh, and you know, remember, it's going to be. From the, the Great Compromise, we have the two houses of legislature. You have the, the House and the Senate. Uh, Article one, I mean, excuse me, Article two, uh, it sets up the executive branch. And then Article three is going to set up the judicial branch. Okay. 34, uh, who did Jefferson rely on when writing the Declaration of Independence? So uh, he didn't, you know, it, it's, we're not talking about when he was writing himself. He didn't have someone looking over his shoulder, you know, but who did he, he get his stuff from? And it's going to be John Locke. Right. He's going to take uh, a lot of his ideas, you know, the, the natural rights and all those things are going to come from from John Locke and a few other of the, the enlightened thinkers. But the main one is going to be John Locke. Uh, Thirty five on the study guide, it says quote analysis. And so there's a quote on there and you just got to take uh, you got to figure out something from from that quote. OK, uh, thirty six. Let's see. What was colonial self-government an example of? So. We said earlier when talking about the unitary system that the British 
you know, back in, in the colonial days, they had their power over there and as the king and, and all that kind of stuff. And they kind of told us what to do. Well, we had set up our own forms of government. And so um, in most places, we had set up kind of a system of democracy where uh, a lot of our leadership was elected. You know, so we had a, we had a kind of a democratic system set up before we actually became our own country. 37, what were the problems with the unicameral legislative branch under the Articles? Well, we've already said that the Articles of Confederation was super weak. And so um, the part of the problem was we had this one house, one, one legislature, and they, you know, it took nine of 13 states to, to pass laws. It took 13 of 13 states in the, in the legislature to, to make a change to the article. So it was just this, this kind of uh, weak system. And so we created the new system, remember the Great Compromise, uh, where we had two houses. And so it's going to, you know, it, it's, we have the separation of powers, each branch, but now even within the legislative branch, we have separation of powers because you have the House and the Senate that can check each other. 38, uh, explain the Bill of Rights and why it was added to the Constitution. So this was the Anti-Federalists' big demand was, you want us to ratify this Constitution, well, you need to put in there a Bill of Rights. And so that is the, the Bill of Rights is going to be our liberties, the civil liberties that are out there and the protections that we have that are guaranteed to us. So the Federalists argued, well, hey, the, the government will just, well, they'll, they'll protect people's rights. But the anti-Federalists, like, we want it written down because, you know, uh, protecting us from unlawful search and seizure is not in the Constitution anywhere. The Federalists just said, well, they'll just, they'll just do it. They won't search and seize you illegally. Well, we want it written down. All right. And so that's that's where that comes from. Um, the anti-federalist need and desire for a Bill of Rights in order to sign up on the Constitution. Uh, stretch run here. Thirty nine. Explain the compromises of the Constitutional Convention. So there's three we talked about in class. So the Great Compromise, you might also see it as the Connecticut Compromise from time to time. Uh, I will live and die by it being the Great Compromise. That is what it is to me. Uh, this was the combination of the Virginia plan where we had a. Uh, legislature, one legislature based on um, population, which made the large states happy. And then you've got the New Jersey plan, which is the small states plan, which is going to be legislation or uh, representation based on equality. And so they combine those two things into the Great Compromise, and that's where we get the House and the Senate. All right, the Three-Fifths Compromise, remember this dealt with representation and taxes. So the South wanted the slave population to count for representation purposes so they'd have more representation in Congress. But then when it came time to pay taxes, which is the population was going to, you know, if there was more people, you have to pay more taxes. They said, no, they don't count as people because this was a whole argument. All right. Uh, the North was the opposite. The North wanted the slave population to count for tax purposes so that the South would pay more, but then not count for representation purposes. So both sides, the North and the South, wanted to have their cake and eat it too. All right. Uh, and that's where the three-fifths compromise comes from, where they're going to count some of the, the slave population. And then the last one was the commerce compromise. Uh, and that is going to be where uh, the South did not want the federal government to be able to regulate the importation of slaves. The North wanted them to. They settled on, OK, the federal government will stay out of it for 20 years. And eventually in 1808, the federal government was allowed to um, regulate the, the importation of slaves. Uh, let's see. 
40. Why have separate branches of government? And we've already kind of talked about this. So I'm not going to spend a great deal of time uh, on this. But remember, we don't want to have people, whether it's a group or whether it's a person, just have too much power in our government. 41, what is the European Union and then what type of government is it? So uh, the European Union is going to be the kind of the loose confederation of the European countries, all right? Uh, and when we say confederation, remember that means that you have the, the states, and in this case, the countries, that are going to make decisions uh, and they're going to kind of guide the single, the, the top, the four, the central government. All right. And then finally, number 42, the American system of government draws its power from where? Well, it's supposed to come from me and you, the people. All right. OK, so this test is going to be on Tuesday. September 8th, the day before we come back face to face, some of you, I know not everybody's coming back face to face, but we want to get this wrapped up. So you're going to take the test on SchoolNet which can be found on your e-class landing page. I will give you the code on, probably make it live on Monday night, um, and uh, at least for my classes, if you're in other classes, listen to this, I'm not sure what your teachers will do. Uh, and then you can log in uh, you know, at your leisure on Tuesday and take the test. It is 40 questions or so, so you block out about 45 minutes to take the test, uh, and uh, we will get it in there, and uh, there we go. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. If you have questions, you can always contact me. My emails are on eClass. The remind is open. Feel free to uh, hit me up as you need for questions. All right, guys. Take care.